everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, author of The Cryptopians. I started covering crypto eight years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the June 13th, 2023 episode of Unchained. Asia's buzzing, and everyone's going to Token 2049 Singapore on September 13th to 14th. Balaji Srinivasan, Mike Novogratz, Arthur Hayes, and 200 others will hit the stage, joining over 10,000 attendees. Visit token2049.com for 65% off with the code UNCHAINED, link in the description. Buy, trade, and spend crypto on the Crypto.com app. New users can enjoy zero credit card fees on crypto purchases in the first seven days. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code LAURA, link in the description. Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Today's topic is the state of crypto regulation in Hong Kong. Here to discuss are Angelina Kwan, CEO of Stratford Finance, and Adrian Lai, founder and managing partner of Newman Capital. Welcome, Angelina and Adrian. Hi, Laura. Hello. Good to see you. On June 1st, Hong Kong implemented new crypto regulations that are welcoming to the industry in various ways. We're going to unpack these and what it could all mean for crypto. But first, let's give everyone your backgrounds so they understand your perspectives on the market and know your experience with crypto in Hong Kong. Angelina, let's start with you. Thanks, Laura. Um, I've spent most of my career either in compliance roles uh, setting up compliance functions as well as COO roles. I spent... Uh, number of years at the Securities and Futures Commission in Hong Kong as a director of enforcement as well as a director of supervision of markets. And I set up the compliance function um, at Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing. So I've spent quite a bit of time in the regulatory um, space and work very closely with the SFC and regulators around Asia Pacific. And how did you also come to like know about crypto or work in crypto? Well, it was really funny. Um, after my after setting up the compliance function at HKEX and, and setting up their foundation, I was approached by headhunters who asked me, um, did I know anything about Bitcoin? And since I had advised um, Bitfinex in early 2013 uh, about setting up an exchange, I did say, yes, I knew. And I was recruited by that uh, headhunter to uh, become the global COO for BitMEX. So uh, I was thrown into what was probably um, one of the most interesting jobs uh, in the world at the time uh, to set up everything for Arthur Hayes uh, and his team. And I was a global COO with there. So that's how I got even more deep into digital assets. So <laughs> Yeah. And with one of the true OGs of the space, which... Um, yes. Yeah, is amazing and must have been really fun. Yes. Um, <laughs> I'm, I've also got the licenses for Hashkey, uh, which is another licensed digital asset exchange in Hong Kong. And I advise a number of uh, stable coin as well as um, traditional finance companies in Hong Kong. Oh, I see. <laughs> and Adrian, how about you? Well, thanks, Laura. Probably my experience is less interesting than, than Angelina. <laughs> but I, but I, I was working at BlackRock um, until I left in 2000, 
16. And I joined the space in early 2017. I uh, started to do a bit of prop trading, obviously lost most of my money actually doing prop trading in ICOs. Uh, if it was going up to $1,400, I held it to $80. Actually, listen to Albert Hayes as well. Albert Hayes saying that it should be double digit uh, for Eve. And um, kind of losing hope a bit of in, in crypto and looking at from different perspective, I started a company called Liquify doing tokenizations. It was a time for STOs. So back into 2017, I think I was too early for that, but I actually looked into a lot of regulations, quite early, early developed regulations around Asia uh, for STOs. And until uh, 2021, I decided to re-enter as an investor and I started Newman Capital, uh, mostly doing investment and venture side of things uh, in US, Southeast Asia, and looking back at Hong Kong because of what is so exciting over the past 12 months in terms of regulations evolving in the, not just in Hong Kong, but overall in the region. So uh, portfolios of us, in whether it's in US or elsewhere, is trying to move to Hong Kong. And that's sort of why me and my team is looking much more into uh, how we can help out, not just talking to regulator, but also the government side of things. But Angelina has been uh, the pioneer in this space. So happy to be on this podcast with you. Thanks, Adrian. Yeah. So I know we're going to go into these regulations that you know were implemented on June 1st, but before we get into all the details on that latest development, why don't you both give us a brief history of the crypto industry in Hong Kong and the rules there and how they've evolved over time? So as early as 2013, when uh, Giancarlo and Jean-Louis came to me as two young men and said, we want to set up an exchange. And I said, I'm sorry, we don't have rules in Hong Kong uh, for a crypto exchange because they were telling me how exciting crypto was. And just to clarify, these are the executives of Bitfinex. Yes, they were the founder, the two founders of Bitfinex. And they were very excited and wanted to set up an exchange in Hong Kong. And since I had come from um, regulating exchanges at uh, the SFC, the Securities and Futures Commission, I was introduced to them to help them set up. And I said, I'm sorry, we don't have any regulations such as this. But I guess if you wanted to start, I guess it's something that you can think about. So they did end up starting their Bitfinex exchange. And that was the start of one of the major exchanges. And you know that, of course, other exchanges started elsewhere, uh, Mount Gox in Japan and so on and so forth. But what happened was we didn't have any legislation at all. And that was the start of with BitMEX um, starting its derivatives exchange. Uh, and then other exchanges uh, like FTX also took um, the lead in Hong Kong. Roughly in about 2016, 2017, all of the these founders started work on their exchanges. There were no regulations whatsoever. And in fact, when I joined um, BitMEX, there was a lot of derision uh, by market participants and regulators that why would a ex-regulator join digital assets like me? Oh my God, has she gone crazy? Because again, um, Bitcoin was looked at as a negative thing. It was looked upon as a scam and so on and so forth. But what happened was you had the um, ascendancy of digital assets uh, and interest in it and BitMEX, of course, took the lead. Binance also uh, was growing. FTX was also growing at the same time. Then Crypto.com. So going into 2018, 2019, almost all the major exchanges had set up in Hong Kong because of the low tax regime. 
again, regulators started looking at it, but they really didn't want to do anything about uh, regulating it, nor did they really know about it. The CFTC did try to get um, the SFC to uh, take some in- investigations forward, but they were not successful because it was so hard to investigate digital assets. So it wasn't until roughly um, 2020 did um, things start getting a little bit strained, I should say. The SFC um, started to put in uh, an opt-in uh, regulatory procedure whereby you could actually put in an application and possibly get a license. The first one to do that was OSL, and the second was HashKey at the time. So the SFC had issued these rules, and um, other firms started uh, looking into getting into it. But the first one, of course, that was approved later was OSL. And then um, about a year later, HashKey was also approved. So finally, the SFC um, started getting, I won't say worried, but more concerned and started to publish more legislation in this area. And one of the initiatives that was proposed was to ban all retail investors from investing in digital assets. Now, um, at that time, I was at the FSDC and um, we brought up this issue to the Financial Services Development Council. And um, at that time, uh, we also told them that if this would happen, most of the houses, the golden unicorns that had started in Hong Kong would probably move away. And that included BitMEX, Crypto.com, who did eventually move away, Binance, and of course, BitMEX and, and other houses. So the FSDC uh, under King Ao and Rocky Tung undertook a review of um, the digital asset business. We had a very high-level meeting, which all the houses came and basically told everything to them about their difficulties in opening accounts and so on and so forth, uh, insurance or lack of insurance, um, visas that weren't able to be gotten because um, the company did not have licenses. So all of these were taken into account, and I'm sorry I'm telling you a longer story, but in the beginning, there wasn't much interest. Later, when Chris Hoey became the new secretary for um, uh, financial services, uh, he took a very big interest in this area and uh, convinced uh, the SFC to start looking into this and take it as a real asset. So by 2021, there was discussions of whether or not to allow retail um, at that time, again, the door slammed and they stopped allowing retail to trade. Uh, that, that thought process was still there. Um, but then just last year, as you saw with the consultation conclusions, there was a vast sea change. And I think what really was the major decision maker was that John Lee came into power Chris, the Secretary for Financial Service, worked with the new administration to speak to China to allow Hong Kong to be the regulatory sandbox. And as such, the SFC also uh, about-faced and allowed um, retail to be traded. And because of this, we're seeing a huge enthusiasm back into Hong Kong where a lot of digital asset players are coming back to Hong Kong and you're seeing Web3 and a lot of new innovation coming back in. And I think this is something that both the Hong Kong government wanted. And I think, of course, China is very pro 
making sure that Hong Kong can succeed and will succeed. So I think these are two very positive pieces of news. Sorry, <laughs> a little bit longer than expected. Sorry, Adrian. One question, when you said that they put a stop to or banned trading or whatever it was you said in 2021, was that at the same time that um, China banned trading and mining uh, for crypto or is that, are they, those separate? I think it's roughly 2018 when mining was banned. Yeah, it was different. And also um, China has always banned crypto. Um, they didn't enforce it as much, but it became more and more enforced in terms of uh, the selling of crypto in or digital assets in China. But this rule in 2021, right? In 2021, yeah. In back in tw- uh, 2020, even they had already banned it. So many of the big exchanges through the Great Firewall, you could not actually get access to BitMEX, for example, in China. Okay. And Adrian, did you want to add anything on the history of crypto regulation or the crypto industry in Hong Kong? Well, I think Angelina have given the full download basically for the past 10 years in terms of regulations. Well, I, I think Hong Kong, I'll try to come from a different perspective, more from the community building and overall the commercial perspective, because I was in touch with crypto back to 2013, actually when Juhan Chu from Kinetic brought Vitalik to Hong Kong. So... He called me and said, there's an interesting meetup you should go. And I went there. There, are just five, there were just five people. So Hong Kong was as early as when Vitalik came to Hong Kong. We have no one really heard about Ethereum. But uh, it was one of the targeted cities for uh, the early OGs, crypto OGs, actually. And, and going back to 2017, so fast forward to 2017, because I was in front of the screen trading crypto in October of 2017, which... China banned uh, crypto trading and Bitcoin mining uh, at that time. So there was an influx of players from China, whether it's OKX, uh, whether it's Binance, Huobi, to Hong Kong. So I think for two, three years, Hong Kong was treated as a place that you want to be there because there was no regulation. Ironically, the regulation is clear now, but at that time, people came here because our regulations was much slower much lower than other jurisdictions. So people, uh, it's, it's ironic that some of the biggest companies, whether it is FTX at that time, including Alameda, uh, Crypto.com, um, not anymore credit at that time yet, but, but you know, F, uh, OKX, Huobi, all, all of them actually had kind of like the headquarter in Hong Kong and uh, the main people in Hong Kong until uh, I think uh, Angelina already mentioned some major uh, consultations or uh, kind of views were, were presented by the regulator. So companies in cryptos realized that Hong Kong is going to do something, whether it's good or bad at that time. I think the sign of being good, sign of a positive, positive sign from regulator, regulator just was presented last year. But before that, it was confusing for the industry. The confusing sometimes is good for, for industry because they kind of feel like uh, we are not going anywhere extreme. Until last year, Obviously, there was a good sign uh, in the Hong Kong FinTech Week, announced on the Hong Kong FinTech Week. Uh, it was so different from before because if, if Angelina and us, we were in the industry for a long time, there was no another time that whether it's the SFC or the uh, financial secretary or Chris Ho or any level from the government came out and say, we are going to you know, push web free in a bit, uh, conservatively, but also positively. Last two weeks, I had some inside uh, closed door meetings with the government as well. 
uh, with senior levels. I think one major question that everyone wants to ask all the time is, has China endorsed Hong Kong pushing Web3? So there's obviously not a public answer out there, but uh, I think the government official already talked to Beijing quite a lot on this and have uh, the kind of go for it um, sign from the Beijing government, which is very encouraging because as commercially, every portfolio will ask, will it be different from before that, uh, you know, or is it the same from before that a ban will happen if some, you know, illegal activities or something negative happened for the industry? Will Hong Kong just do it a 180 degree turn if something happens? So uh, I think it's not the case because the government really has a positive view on pushing that through. I agree with Adrian um, completely. I don't think there's going to be ever again another 180 degree turn, but there will be enforcement actions by the SFC if people break the rules um, once once the licenses are in place. So um, we can expect that um, it's going to be a um, thriving industry, but one that takes care of its investors and grows to be a real asset class which we've always known it's a real asset class, but um, <laughs> now it's really going to be a developed asset class in Hong Kong, which is highly exciting. Yeah. So let's let's dive now into these new rules. So on June 1st, the Hong Kong Securities and Futures Commission, as we've been discussing, began accepting applications for virtual asset service providers to serve retail customers. Um, what is it that these new rules say? I jump in at any time, Adrian. <laughs> but in a nutshell, uh, basically, if you wish to offer um, digital assets in Hong Kong, you must be licensed. Um, the licensing regime is based on same product, uh, same as what is being done with securities and futures. You will get a license and you will have to uh, comply with rules and regulations. You will need to put in internal controls that are documented, which to me are best practice in any ways that you would want to put in place. You will need to take care of your customers. They will need to be suitable to be able at, to understand digital assets. There will be segregated accounts. Uh, there's security over how the firms run. Um, you will have uh, a number of uh, uh, requirements to keep minimum capital so the firm will not go bankrupt. Uh, and there will be uh, requirements for responsible officers uh, that will look after the firm and be responsible for the firm. So very much the same way that um, securities firms are run in Hong Kong, um, the SFC will require the same of uh, digital asset firms that are getting licenses. And already it's um, proven the system works. We already have licensed companies in Hong Kong, uh, both in the fund management space as well as OTC broking. Uh, those that are brokers can uplift their licenses um, to be able to offer digital assets through a licensed um, digital asset provider like OSL, for example. And um, then the new trading uh, firms that are coming in, uh, the digital asset exchanges, uh, people from Binance, from what we hear, all the way to um, new firms that are setting up in Hong Kong will be able to get licenses or already have put in licenses. Yeah. And one other requirement that I just wanted to flag for mm -hmm. those people who have been scarred by things like Mt. Cox and FTX is that there's a cold storage requirement yes. of 98% of the coins need to be held in cold storage, which I think is 
a really great regulation. Um, so Adrian, can you describe what it is that they can list in terms of the tokens or like what requirements the tokens have to meet? I, I believe the tokens need to have a 12 months track record. Uh, so listed probably elsewhere for 12 months, issue for 12 months. And um, well, but jumping back a bit, well, the regulations is a bit, it's, I think it's encouraging because they actually mimic quite exactly what the traditional security law in Hong Kong serves. So basically, if you are a traditional broker or traditional asset managers in Hong Kong, obviously you have a standard way to deal with SFC in terms of your activities. So uh, when you look at the guideline issued by, not the guideline, but the new law issued by SFC in terms of License 7, which is the trading trading uh, facilities in Hong Kong, I think it's pretty similar to uh, um, traditional way of dealing with uh, the SFC. But also, in the same time, it takes care of specific things that you would think about in crypto, just same as the question that you asked in terms of the token uh, whether you have, I think it has to be a 12 month track record, including in certain two indexes, I think at least two indexes. When you look through that universe, and obviously with the quality requirement, but one thing pretty interesting is they always require the platform operator to do due diligence. So that is one key thing. So you, they never, you never think about you as a, as a company getting a license and you could do whatever, right? You, you basically have the fiduciary to do the due diligence. Same as any kind of broker, if you get a license as a, as a broker, you need to do due diligence in terms of what you're selling uh, to your clients. So I think that will impose certain uh, requirement on exchanges, even licenses trying to list the tokens. So you heard some of the exchanges in the market already say they're going to list 16 tokens, whether it is true they already get approval or they talk to a regulator. At the end, I think they have the discretion but up to whether something happens and if they haven't done the proper due diligence, they will be punished by the regulator. So I think the regulator has given a kind of a pull and push approach. So given a bit of flexibility out there with the guidance you, you need to follow, but at the end you have to bear your responsibility as the operator yourself. And so, I mean, to me, that seems like a high bar to have, uh, you know, the, the coins need to be um, listed in two different independent index indexes and one needs to be a provider that has experience in the traditional financial sector. So how many assets, like you mentioned 16, like, so which assets do you expect will be offered? Like how limited do you think it will be compared to, you know, what we currently see on like Binance? Well, Angelina, obviously you, you have your uh, own comments as well, but I have questions when, when I look at the 16, 16 coins, uh, I think it was, it was announced by one exchange out there. Some tokens, I do have questions on why they could be listed. Which tokens were those? So sandbox tokens, I, I would do have questions on in terms of the uh, volatility, liquidity, and and whether it should be traded on platform day one. Well, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not saying that it's not going to, it shouldn't be traded for, for, five, for five months later. But from, from an investor perspective, I think it is for the first five tokens, Bitcoin, Ether, and probably some of the bigger bigger ones, except stable coins, because stable coins are not allowed to trade now on, on the Hong Kong exchanges. But some of the tokens like SEND is probably a bit dangerous for day one. As I mentioned, it's a discretion for a platform operator to, to, to list them as long as you, know, you, you, you have the license approved finally. So if you were an operator, which you were saying that you would be comfortable with five, which five? Bitcoin, Ether, and then which are the other three? 
well, let me look up the top 10 now, actually. <laughs> but, 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 you know, Bitcoin Ether is obviously the choice, but, you know, uh, not if excluding the stable coins, probably not BNB for now. Uh, Solana, Polygon, not top 10, but could be safer choices than uh, listing some of the application-based tokens. So I, I think foundation-based token probably is the easier ones to get listed initially. And is the less volatility compared to uh, some of the application-based tokens as well. So, um, Laura, one of Laura and Adrian, one of the new areas which is quite novel that um, has been introduced as a part of the regulation is the fact that the onus has been put on the firm um, to take responsibility. So, therefore, a new criterion has been put in place that requires the firm to have an admissions committee. So that admissions committee has to meet it if it wishes to list a specific token. Adrian has mentioned some of the characteristics that can be used as a part of the diligence process. But the most important thing is the firm will need to take responsibility and the responsible officers will need to take responsibility for this. So a due diligence list of why the firm has made these decisions to allow Bitcoin and Ethereum to be listed, that the fact that they are listed on two or three exchanges or different products or they're approved somewhere else, all of that, that information and background has to be in the report um, that actually is tendered to this admissions committee. And uh, all of that needs to be minted by the licensed person. And why is the SFC taking such a um, stance on this is because they do not and they did not approve the product. Unlike any other product in, in Hong Kong, if you offer a fund in Hong Kong, that has to be licensed by the investment products division of the SFC. It will be authorized and there will be all sorts of um, uh, documentation on why the SFC approved that product. But for Bitcoin, for Ether, none of this has been approved by the SFC. It's just appeared because of Satoshi Nakamoto or Vitalik Buterin. And it's up to the firm then to take the responsibility. And if the firm lacks that documentation and that due diligence, I think the SFC will take action. Um, maybe in the beginning, giving a bit of leeway, but firms will need to get their um, paperwork and due diligence in line to make sure that they protect investors. And I think that's a very novel way of making sure that firms make sure that they have the analysis before allowing a sand or a doggy coin or whatever it is to be unleashed on investors um, and uh, investor protection is in place. So that's just building on what Adrian was saying. But this was a very unusual and new way of looking at things, which I thought was quite interesting. And I asked Elizabeth at length. Elizabeth is the young lady who did the policy uh, and wrote the policy. And, and what's her uh, last name? Uh, Elizabeth Wong uh, was uh, the team lead that actually drafted uh, much of it. Of course, within the commission, everybody drafts policy together, but she actually was the lead person taking that. And uh, I had interviewed her um, through another interview at uh, the Hong Kong Securities Institute to ask about this and other questions. So, I mean, it seems like this is kind of um, a tempered way of 
inviting crypto, right? It's like Very much. we're going to license the exchanges. Um, you know, there are these certain standards about listing tokens, and some of the other things uh, that I think I saw discouraged. Like one of them was airdrops. Like, what are some other kind of like parameters they've put around these things? So you know, it's like inviting crypto activity, but only within a certain boundary. That the people running it um, will be licensed and be held accountable, and you will know exactly who is running the firm and that they will be located in Hong Kong. So it's very clear um, whether or not they're going to be licensed or not. And it'll be very clear, unlike what happened with FTX, of where are you going to get recompense if if you've opened an account in Hong Kong, then you can take action in Hong Kong. The regulator will take action if you complain. Um, and there'll be a, a way that you can grab onto something. Whereas if you know with FTX now, for those of the people that have taken losses, uh, Hong Kong investors, because they didn't sign up with a Hong Kong, uh, licensed company, uh, were at the last in the line to get any recompense, if anything, uh, from the FTX. Um, uh, proceedings that are going on in the United States. But in the United States and Bahamas, they will actually get the first bite of the cherry in terms of um, uh, uh, funds going back to the aggrieved uh, investors. So that's a very, very big difference um, to protect investors. Sorry, I'm talking a lot. Adrian, did you want to add in uh, stuff? Or um, No, I think, I think it is really, you, you, you actually strike a really good point in terms of the ROO. Because RO responsible officers again same as any type of regulated activities in Hong Kong, they are held responsible for any actions you're gonna take. It is it, it reflects on the RO level, also reflect on the company level, uh, which is quite unusual, uh, as Angelina mentioned, that you you approve internally based on due diligence and certain token to get listed, but at the end it's the company to be blamed. It's it's quite a different approach from rest of the other uh, kind of companies to be regulated. And for those of us who are ROs, I'm also an RO, a responsible officer. It's criminal. If something goes wrong, um, it's my head, my license. So I'm going to be very careful with the decisions that I make. I'm going to make sure that the company is protected as well as investors are protected because I don't want to be carted off to jail. And <laughs> you have seen actions being taken against responsible officers who have been derelict in their duties. And um, I mean, that's a firm is as strong as the people that run it. And that's why um, that regime is in place. And this is to make sure that digital assets um, as a licensed activity will be good for investors and will protect investors. And I think that's the great part of all of this because we're on our pathway to become an ex really an accepted um, asset class, at least in Hong Kong and in Asia Pacific. Yeah, yeah, I definitely see this as being a good model for other jurisdictions as well. So in a moment, we're going to talk about other areas of regulation that we could see coming out in Hong Kong. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. Join over 10,000 attendees for this year's biggest crypto event at Token 2049 Singapore on September 13th to 14th. Sandeep from Polygon, Eric Wall, Chris Berniski, and over 200 others will hit the stage, joining the industry's most influential for an unforgettable experience ahead of the Formula One Grand Prix race weekend. 
Singapore will transform into a crypto hub for a week, from September 11th to 17th, with over 300 side events that will make for unparalleled networking opportunities. Builders and investors at the bleeding edge of innovation will drive an agenda that covers the ever-evolving regulatory landscape, the convergence of crypto and AI, Web3 Gaming, NFTs in the Metaverse, DeFi, Scalability, Interoperability, and many more. Visit Token2049.com for 65% off regular tickets with the code UNCHAINED. Link in the description. Join over 80 million people using Crypto.com, one of the easiest places to buy, trade, and spend over 250 cryptocurrencies. With the Crypto.com Visa card, you can spend your crypto anywhere and get rewarded at every step. Up to 5% cash back instantly, plus 100% rebates for your Netflix and Spotify subscriptions, and zero annual fees. New users enjoy zero credit card fees on crypto purchases in their first seven days. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. Back to my conversation with Angelina and Adrian. Something that was really interesting to me was that uh, I read that the Hong Kong Monetary Authority is even urging banks to open accounts for crypto companies, which given everything that has happened recently in the U.S. with Silvergate and um, Signature Bank and um, even Silicon Valley Bank a little bit, um, and you know the debanking of a bunch of crypto companies here, um, it just seemed like <laughs> a geopolitical play, I guess you could say. So I was wondering, you know, um, is that kind of activity actually drawing crypto firms? Um, and, you know, given what we were talking about in terms of this sort of limited kind of space in which to play with all the different regulations, is is all of this uh, actually attracting crypto companies? I think it is. What about you, Adrian? Well, definitely. Well, but there's always a question. So when these things happen on the news and uh, you, you heard portfolio asking, is that real? Because usually people have a pretty skeptical towards what's happening in Hong Kong. Because over the past several years, we've been talking about how we can propel crypto. But at the end of the day, we know that it was real this time. But people outside of Hong Kong doesn't know it's real. So put it this way, uh, I think it was there was a Bloomberg article coming out uh, when Silvergate, all of those banks, got shot at that time. And uh, when Chinese banks is trying to recruit crypto companies uh, for bank accounts, and Bloomberg was was doing that news. Actually, I was contacted by Bloomberg on that as well, but I was not sure whether it's real or not. Because when I talked to all these Chinese banks at that time, I think there was, there was conversations for not too senior level with the RMs, I mean, relationship managers, with clients in terms of getting open up bank accounts. So I was still not convinced it was more policies in place or a narrative in place that banks are going to open up crypto accounts until I think some of the even virtual banks in Hong Kong talk about it. So you, you, you see there's, um, there's a spread of these kind of messaging across news outlet and banks start to talk about that. I think portfolios start to get comfortable. And even, 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 uh, until Last, I think last two weeks, uh, some of our portfolios want to open a bank account, just operating bank account. So it's not crypto in and out all days, but just a crypto company trying to open a bank account with banks is actually getting easier. So believe it or not, I think the relationship managers, three years ago, you talk to them, not as a crypto company, you talk to them and tell them you are a technology consulting company or your technology advisor <laughs> company to get rid of that, even though your whole website is all blockchain, this and that. 
<laughs> if you if you get a, a friend as an RM, then you probably could still make it happen. But I think these these days, if you open up as a crypto company's operating bank account, the RM actually takes your call. So I think it's pretty encouraging. Adrian's right. It is a bit more encouraging. And the HKMA and the SFC have actually met once already. There's a second meeting, which I've just received an invitation for, uh, that will be held in a few in a few weeks, I think. Um, I forgot the date. But um, uh, this will also be to expedite bank accounts. And I think the HKMA has taken it very seriously. So if you're definitely licensed or on the road to being licensed, um, you will be able to get a bank account. It's for the ones that are in the process of getting a license that will take a little bit longer. But I'm sure that if you showed evidence of your license application or um, things like that, I think banks will probably start move moving towards getting you um, banked up. The other area that was really, really difficult for licensed companies was to get insurance. So um, you had to think of really unusual ways to get insurance to fulfill a requirement of the licensing regime. So you'd get specie license that was pretty much useless. If you could show an insurance policy, at least that fulfilled it. Now the insurance uh, regulators, as well as the Federation of Insurers, are actually working with FSDC to talk to insurance companies so that digital asset firms can get insurance. So all of these are slowly working through the system. And I have to say, um, thanks to work from the FSDC, as well as the SSVC and HKMA working together to move this with Invest Hong Kong, um, all of this has just pushed it along, which has been a lot better. And I think the government realizes that, hey, People, the smartest of smart, the digital asset firm owners are leaving Hong Kong. That means tech people are going to get pulled away. And there were a lot of people going to Dubai. There were a lot of people going back to the U.S., Austin, Texas. Um, and I think now we sort of, yeah, now. <laughs> well, maybe it's the other way around now <laughs> with the thing with Gary Gensler's uh, newest case. But nevertheless, I think um, that stem of leaving has sort of stopped, thankfully, and people are thinking about coming back, which is very, very good for Hong Kong. So so something else that looks like it's on the horizon is stablecoin regulation in yep. Hong Kong. Yeah. So what do you think that will look like and when do you think that might happen? The HKMA has already announced uh, that they will put out consultation for the regulation of stablecoins. They've already soft-consulted a number of stablecoin issuers, uh, some of which are very interested, some of which are not so interested. Um, so because there is a huge level of, not huge, but there is a level of regulation, and some of those stablecoin providers will need to be located in Hong Kong. For, and I'm sure Adrian can sort of explain it better than I can. Some of these stablecoin people are worried about their safety in Hong Kong um, because of where the coin and how it can be used and who's buying it and so on and so forth. So there are concerns, even though we're one country, two systems. So some of them have already indicated they, they will not be licensed or they will not seek licensing. And we'll prefer I mean, to be outside I, I of it. I don't fully understand. They're they're concerned about their safety because of where you just said where the coin, meaning like 
because the reserve they could be used to try to get access to the reserves or what do you mean by that no i mean basically if they're systemically important um i'm just echoing what some of these stablecoin issuers have talked to me about that they're slightly worried about being in hong kong because it's so close to china and even now and even though there has been a clear regulatory path for digital assets. Crypto people are very, shall we say, conservative in terms of security. And um, there, is, there are worries by certain crypto providers that their safety may be threatened here. But, but I don't understand because of some physical threat from China. Is that what you're implying? I don't understand what you're saying. It's just in general... Overall, people are skeptical whether the Hong Kong policies will be will be reversed because of uh, China's negative view towards crypto. Because we all we all know that if, if we clearly in the industry we all know that Hong Kong is pro crypto now, uh, it's not that clear whether China is pro crypto. So the one country two system, uh, you know, not everyone knows clearly about one country two system. If you are outside of Hong Kong, you just worried. Oh, actually, Hong Kong is part of China. If China doesn't write crypto. Something happens in Hong Kong, will I get arrested? So that's basically it. So oh. not not really not really uniquely related to stable coins, but just overall the crypto sentiment uh, in Hong Kong. Thank you for explaining that a lot better than I could. So sorry. I'm just realizing, like I I've always heard this expression "one country, two systems," but I suddenly realize I don't know what it means because if you have a country, uh, there should be laws which generally will come from one place, right? Who's like you talking? can't have two. <laughs> so I, don't, I don't get what, yeah, I'm, I'm all of a sudden realizing I literally don't know what that means. And I know this is like off the topic of crypto, but if you could just briefly explain that so we can understand it in this context of what we're discussing, like what does that mean? Largely one country, two systems is basically China has promised in law and in documentation to the British government when Britain handed over Hong Kong in 1997, that Hong Kong would be run as a separate country, separate to what China, how China runs it. It has its own constitution. It has its own laws and rules in place in oh. Hong Kong. So one country, because it's part of China. Yeah. What I thought it meant was Hong Kong is one country, but it has two governmental systems. Other way but around, China. Hong Kong and China make up one country. Yes. But Hong Kong has its own. Co- oh, own systems. Now, okay. This is own completely laws. not what I thought. Yes. I literally thought it was the exact opposite. But anyway, okay, keep going. <laughs> Hong Kong uh, follows common law, common law, right? So basically, same as UK and, and uh, some of the other countries. So, well, but, but obviously, Beijing does have the directions in terms of how Hong Kong should should work towards economic policies and all that, but we have an independent system to decide the details and all of the uh, legislations and stuff. We have our own legislative council, uh, which is independent from China. Okay. Okay. But I kind of feel like also my interpretation works that like Hong Kong is its own place, but there's two governments that have influence over it. No, um, Hong Kong has its own government and China has its own government. Hong Kong's government reports into China and largely we are. That's what I mean. Yeah, we are segregated. um, But of course, with the Greater Bay Area uh, working together, there are areas where we work very closely with parts of China, for example. 
Okay. So I do want to get even more into this discussion around geopolitical issues with China. But before we do that, I just want to ask, so, you know, we've talked about the licensing of the exchanges. We are talking about how the stablecoin uh, regulations are going to come down. So are there any other areas of Hong Kong crypto regulation that you foresee maybe um, happening in the future? Could be around, I don't know, like NFTs or trying to attract developers or I don't know, tokens. Do you see anything else on the horizon? I think I think even for so even for stable coins, we were talking about that as well. You know, not whether it's digital Hong Kong. The I'm not talking about existing stablecoin provider outside of outside of Hong Kong, whether it's Tether or other stablecoin provider. But digital Hong Kong D or uh, offshore Renminbi, so CNH, whether they will be in digital format, uh, I think it is gonna be something happening for for sure. It's digital Hong Kong D yep. for sure, whether it's offshore CNH. Uh, not sure, and whether it's done by Hong Kong companies or Chinese companies. But we all know that the once there's a stable coin in place, and and the government actually has been trying out over the past several years, uh, whether it's with the Thailand uh, Hong Kong made equivalent on testing out the the settlement with digital stable coin or digital or stable coin, is to connect the Greater Bay Area, right? Because Hong Kong, Shenzhen, and Guangzhou. If imagine in in at one world that that stable coin being regulated and being endorsed by the government, our stocks could essentially be settled instantly by having digital Hong Kong D directly buying a stock in Shenzhen. So that's something connect the whole region and creating another powerful economic zone. But one way that I see it is, and it's also not something that I think regulator will do, but something I hope regulator will do is after having the digital Hong Kong D in place and how it should be regulated, but then also to the enterprise stable coins. So meaning that if New World as a listed company, a pretty big property developer in Hong Kong can launch a digital New World stable coin, actually it will totally transform the equity market. And um, I see actually happening. I, I heard conversation around that already within the government, but not sure when that would be launched. Probably Angelina would know better than I do. But besides all the stablecoin stuff, I think deriv- derivative market is something going to be regulated pretty soon. And uh, good and bad as well. It is much bigger than a spot market. So I think if it got regulated in a pretty clear way, same as the spot market now, huge opportunities to Hong Kong as well. So just building on what Adrian was saying, um, I think the st- first step that the HKMA has taken has been a great step in terms of um, they will be issuing consultation for um, a stable coin regulation. So that one step is one step further. The e-Hong Kong dollar, um, uh, the HKMA has announced a competition or a group of people have been selected to come up with use cases for the e-Hong Kong dollar and how it will be used in terms of Hong Kong. So there have been some very novel cases that are being worked on right now for final presentation uh, to work with um, HKMA as well as um, LISCOs and companies in Hong Kong to start launching use cases. So you can see that the government is really actually finding use cases um, for the e-Hong Kong dollar and echoing what Adrian's saying, the cooperation between UAE, Thailand, uh, Hong Kong is really working together as they study how to come up with a uh, e uh, a stable coin that works amongst uh, all these different parties. So that's continuing. And then 
you asked about other products that are probably going to be launched. The SFC has already committed to issuing a paper at some point about tokenization, which is very clear rules. And this has really been lacking, which is why tokenization has not taken off as fast as it should be taking off. So they've committed to saying that they will issue a consultation paper on tokenization to just need a bit of time. So that's one area that's going to be looked at. And when you say that, do you mean tokenization of real world assets? Yeah, or- tokenization of assets and, and or other products, uh, which could be possibly moving into stock, who knows. But I can definitely say that real estate is very hot um, and, and, and an area that people are very, very interested in seeing some kind of consultation on. So I think that's going to be coming out. NFTs, the SFC has said that they are not going to regulate it at this time, but their view may be changing because of the use cases of NFTs are also changing. The original art-based NFT wasn't really that interesting in terms of as a product, but as the use of NFTs grows, that could be another area where the SFC will issue additional guidance in terms of products. So I think all of this development is going to be interesting. But as Adrian said, I think the most exciting will be how the uh, Chinese, uh, the E Yuan, uh, 22,000 companies worked on developing this whole system in China for the EU on. So if 22,000 companies in China are working on that, you can imagine how important it is to the, to China. And then for Hong Kong, the e Hong Kong dollar will be very important because of course our neighbor is China and we're one country, two systems. So I think that will grow in time especially with trading and its trading trading partners with Hong Kong and China. The e-dollars will definitely be an important part of growth for all economies uh, around the world. So as we alluded to a few times throughout this episode, there's been reports that China is sanctioning this increased crypto activity in Hong Kong. Bloomberg reported, quote, representatives from China's liaison office and other officials have been frequent guests at the city's crypto gatherings in past months. The low-key support shows that officials are keen on using the laissez-faire city as a testing ground for digital assets as they keep a tight rein on any such activity on the mainland. So how are you interpreting this? Like, are you kind of prognosticating that this could mean the opening of crypto activity in China? Or where do you see this headed? Well, I, I, when, I, when I was... Um... I was in a trip with uh, Invest Hong Kong to Japan, actually, I think in April. One of the questions by the Japanese government is exactly uh, when China is doing this, Hong Kong is doing that, uh, is it completely different policies? And I think the, it was answered by uh, certain government officials is exactly the proof of one country, two system in terms of what Hong Kong is encouraging web free activities, but China is actually banning quite a lot of stuff. And, and, and you would, I think both of you have read the news, uh, people got arrested in, in China uh, for doing something in crypto. As exactly, we're seeing tons of Chinese companies, not just in financial companies, actually. I think the government is also talking to Chinese gaming companies. If you want to set up crypto fund or crypto arm, just do it in Hong Kong. It's a very clear direction that Hong Kong now is the city for you to do every. And uh, with that's exactly, if you, if you translate that 
across the supply chain. I think most of the, not just custodian exchanges, but also projects now are moving to Hong Kong. Cyberport has, I was talking to the Cyberport Vetting Committee. Cyberport is kind of a, we're not sure what it's non-profit, but they're basically the incubation center endorsed by the government, government owned as well, to encourage entrepreneurship. Uh, they have received over 200 of companies from China just to enter an incubation program. Historically, uh, if you want to get an incubation program, you are a startup that is probably need monies, but they receive a lot of proposals from Chinese companies, which are super rich. They just want to be in Hong Kong because they want to be in crypto. So I think that message is getting direct now towards even Chinese companies. And if you notice, um, Laura, this is not um, unusual. So if you look, Hong Kong was given um, the stock market, and it was the market that was, um, shall we say, developed for trading and for fundraising. Whereas if you look at Macau, it's very much uh, the gambling, um, and it was specifically given gambling uh, for its revenue and for its businesses, and that's how it's developed. So again, in, in the case of Hong Kong, because... I think the Hong Kong government did push uh, very hard to be able to have technology as well as um, digital assets, as well as Web3 moving forward um, as a technological advancer for China. Um, I think this is, this is proof that um, uh, it, the system is working. And that's how China makes sure that these test labs work before um, other things are allowed to move forward. So I think, um, I think you're going to continue to see this type of test cases in terms of uh, uh, new areas being tested in different parts of the realm of China. And so while all this is happening in Hong Kong, at the same time, China has really been moving forward with a ton of private government-initiated blockchains. Oh, yeah. And I wondered, yeah, like... You know, I don't know if you have much awareness of that, but do you see if they're getting uptake? Like, are they being used just in that way of like the government trying to push it on people? Or is it like actually kind of getting more organic usage as well? I think um, the blockchain and remember I talked about the 22,000 companies um, for the EUAN. Those were part of the blockchain companies. And uh, one of the companies that I worked with uh, was owned by Wanchang. So Hashkey is owned by the Wanchang Group, which originally was a car parts maker that moved very quickly into the blockchain space, um, moving into development technology and Web3. So um, you're seeing that happen in China, and there is uptick as the blockchain technology uh, evolves, not just in digital assets, but also in use cases for payments, uh, in use cases for parts and tracking of parts, for example, um, tracking of livestock. It's amazing some of the things that the blockchain can do to keep track of um, livestock and, and car manufacturing i've seen the most amazing um prototypes of of tracking devices that actually watch how uh how livestock is growing how fast it weighs them automatically and monitors um their systems for example their life systems so you're seeing use cases that are moving from what was imagined into real areas and this is where china is excelling because They've got so much um, thought power in the blockchain to 
push this forward. So it's moving into real um, life uses in terms of everywhere from watching livestock to growing plants and or um, uh, crops, for example. Um, I did see a report, though, that a former Chinese central banker said that two years in, the digital yuan yuan usage had been low. It was only $14 billion in two years, and he called these results not ideal. Um, But do you sense, obviously, this is from December, so it's uh, six months ago. Do you have a sense of whether that's changed at all, or, you know, do you still... Do you still think it's like fairly low or? Well, I think the CBDC was in the beta beta state. And, and to, to, be, to be fair, it's launched, I think, much faster than a lot of different countries as well, considering the 1.4 or 1.2 billion people in China. So I, I feel like when, when we talk about blockchain application as well in China, CBDC obviously is one huge use cases, but I heard a lot happening around two things. Uh, one is, NFT equivalent, they call it digital collectible in China. So you can't use the word NFT in China. You have to use digital collectible. Uh, well, is the fundamental difference is probably NFT could be mined on public blockchain, but digital collectibles have to be mined on private blockchain endorsed by China or uh, you know part of the China ecosystem. And the second thing is actually metaverse. So metaverse is yes. a huge thing in China. Uh, the difference between the, the usual metaverse and these metaverse in China is they are promoting digital properties. And digital properties could be, you know, XR, AR, VR, could be holograph. It doesn't necessarily relate to crypto. But the idea of open world and metaverse actually has already reflected in the gaming world, reflected into a hosting concert in a metaverse setting, an open world digital format setting in China. So I think China is pushing, uh, I would I would put it this way. I think they are pushing the thesis behind um, uh, Web3 not necessarily with a public blockchain, but they, they believe that some of the services should be accessible easily at a cheaper cost, but could be on a private blockchain. Well, I, ironically, even as a VC ourselves, I, I don't necessarily think it's wrong because when you have a mass of 1.2 billion people, it's different from launching a private blockchain among 8 million people. So, uh, <laughs> so um, I think China is pushing that front and t- using Hong Kong as a city to test the Really every front. At, at some point, whether it will integrate, not sure, but but I think that's the way, pretty clear direction, what they, why they're doing this as well. So it sounds like it's going to be the way the internet is today, where there's like China's internet and then the rest of the internet. And so in the future, it'll probably be like China's blockchains and then we have our public blockchains. Is that where you think it's headed? The key question is whether the, the, the public blockchain and China blockchain will integrate at some point or composable at some point? I think that's the key question. Whether whether it reflects down to the application layer, uh, uh, infrastructure as in the Shenzhen Stock Exchange, at some point could be composable with, in the ideal world, Uniswap. Well, we, I, I don't think it is not impossible. But do you think China would want to give its citizens access to other kinds of money? I mean, the reason that they have the current internet is they don't want people to have, you know, the information that the rest of us have. And I don't think they would want to give people the freedom with their money. Well, uh, Angelina and I have different view. My personal opinion is, I think it's not about the flow of information anymore. It's it's really about controlling the outflow, outflow capital. That's exactly. And Adrian's spot on. That's why I'm saying, do you think they'll want to just have it all integrated with 
other blockchains because then people can, yeah, easily send their money out of the Chinese system. As long as if KYC AML is imposed on both sides. So, uh, you know, at, at some point, well, I think it's it, in, inevitable that Uniswap or other DEX at some point will have to impose uh, uh, digital ID. Uh, that's, that's going for a DeFi world. And at some point, uh, China has launched GBT successfully ac- across the whole country. It will be composable because you know where the capital is flowing, flowing around the blockchain. And uh, obviously, in the open world, uh, uh, we know the, where this money is going and tech with a digital ID. So as long as the money flow is clear, I don't think China will have a complete 100% ban, but that's just my own view. And probably lot lo- yeah. in the future as well. <laughs> yeah, and I, I would probably push back on what you said about the information because obviously with the pandemic, they were suppressing all kinds of information and even trying oh. to censor <laughs> non-Chinese people about that. So that was interesting to watch. But anyway. But China has actually put in what is the common reporting system. So they've already put in a number of controls in place in terms of making sure that um, that information is tracked. Um, and then if you look at some of the things that are going on in terms of um, how things do work, in it, there's a very good test case, which is the Stock Connect and um, Hong Kong's Hong Kong exchanges and clearing works with China's exchanges, and you can buy if you're a Hong Kong person, you can buy directly uh, stock from Shanghai and other exchanges directly. So that's an example where China um, has connected um, and using Charles uh, Lee's description where Hong Kong EX is connecting China to the world and the world to China because you can trade directly. So China is already moving into this space in terms of testing in possibilities for um, uh, a closed circuit, but you can uh, invest into China directly um, as well as Chinese uh, investors can directly uh, invest into Hong Kong. And I think in time, as, as China gets more comfortable, they're probably going to enlarge that, that stock connect to other markets. And certainly, um, I think, um, because HKX owns the London's metals, London metals exchange and had, uh, aspirations to, uh, move into the London stock exchange at some point, um, before, um, there will be opportunities for China to connect more outwards also. Um, but they're already doing it in terms of owning uh, international companies, um, but it's just been limited in terms of how open that common person in Beijing can can access the the uh, uh, foreign markets. So I think it's going to be a little bit slow, but the world is opening, and Hong Kong truly is a conduit for um, China uh, and opening it up to the world. So that's just my view. So let's zoom out. Um, here we've been, you know, talking about Hong Kong, then we added China. Uh, but meanwhile, just generally in crypto, there's a lot of change happening right now in terms of uh, jurisdictions either becoming more welcoming to crypto or less. Um, 
you know, if you're uh, in the US, I think that's what we're seeing where even an extremely compliant company like Coinbase is getting sued by the SEC, which is sort of interesting to watch. Um, but I was curious for your thoughts on, you know, where you see things going kind of globally, uh, Dubai, um, Europe, Singapore, they've all sort of been, you know, adding regulations that add clarity for crypto companies. So kind of, um, you know, where do you see companies going? Um, how do you see Hong Kong within that larger global field? And then, of course, because the big elephant in the room is the U.S. and right now it is uh, taking a very unfriendly stance. I was just wondering what your thoughts were on how this would affect crypto globally. Okay, I'll just talk about the regulations and maybe Adrian could talk about what he knows the crypto bros too, um, better than I might. <laughs> and women, crypto women too. Yes, <laughs> crypto girls too. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, what's been happening is as, well, it was a prediction, prediction that I made that within five to 10 years from within five years from 2018, that almost all the uh, regulators around the world would start doing some kind of regulation. And sure enough, you're seeing that exact thing happened. Um, so in particular, Dubai has um, moved forward with a innovative um, regulator called VARA, uh, Virtual Assets Regulatory Authority. And um, there, uh, I we met with them when we went to. Uh, I went with a group recently to um, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, and uh, uh, Riyadh. So Abu Dhabi and and Dubai in particular have regimes and have licensed um, digital asset firms. Uh, Binance being uh, one of the main ones at the Abu Dhabi uh, Financial Center, uh, and Dubai already has issued, um, in principle, approvals for um, uh, licensees. And a lot of people find moving to Dubai um, interesting, uh, and it has been attracting financial players. So the Middle East uh, is an area that has uh, become very interesting because, of course, the Emirati money, uh, as well as the investments uh, that uh, uh, Riyadh, uh, Dubai, and Abu Dhabi are making to attract investors have really brought in a lot of um, people uh, relocating there. Then you've got Europe, which just put in Mika. Um, and uh, Mika, uh, there's still a lot to be studied. Uh, and in fact, IOSCO will be meeting next week in Thailand. Uh, so I'm sure the digital asset um, agenda will be discussed amongst all the global regulators. But you're seeing Europe um, now has a regime that's um, starting to come together, but it's too early to tell how that will attract or not attract people. Asia still seems to be the hot area. Then you're looking at the U.S. Um, I, I understand that our Republican government has actually uh, issued some sort of draft legislation um, that and has put it out there uh, in the United States for regulation of digital asset digital assets, but. There hasn't been much coverage, but it was it was mentioned in the news that a draft has been published. You're looking at South America. Um, some countries have actually started uh, issuing um, legislation, but it's very um, 
sparse. So you've got Salvador, El Salvador, for example, that does uh, embrace Bitcoin. Um, Africa, uh, the last um, frontier, is also looking at uh, putting in regulations. There are firms that are pushing the frontier there to get regulated and uh, start operations in uh, the African countries. But no regulator has really taken a firm push except for possibly Nigeria and Uganda. Um, so there is definite interest in Africa as the next frontier uh, of growth. Um, so that's sort of a whistle stop of some of the countries that are looking at it. But I think aside from Asia, I think um, the Middle East is probably the, uh, the second most interesting place to be. I don't know if you agree with that, Adrian. But Well, I, I have a, a, from a firm perspective, we're looking to moving headquarters, obviously, same as a lot of different companies over the past two years. And we decided to base in Hong Kong. And yes. um, I, I think it is... A key, there are several key factors, but the key question, the key thing is globally, there are just three uh, cities with uh, a huge enough financial market to to support global activities. It's New York, London, and Hong Kong, just three of them. And uh, London been doing quite a lot, FCA been doing quite a lot, Sandbox and all that. You don't see a lot happening, actually. Uh, New York, obviously, with all these uh, things happening now, is going nowhere uh, com- relatively to Hong Kong. So it is. I think the the view that we have formulated as a company is if you want to grow truly into a web-free hub, uh, maybe licensing and the capital formation is quite important at the beginning. And it comes down to uh, whether you could attract not just funding, but also developers and uh, you know builders into the city. So Hong Kong has been quite weak, to be honest, in terms of developers and builders, but we have set the stone in terms of capital fundraising and so uh, it should be easier to attract talents in but i agree with angelina when when i look at different jurisdictions because i because i personally i got a license approval i think back in 2019 in abu dhabi so when my previous startup uh, we got a principal approval and uh for being otc player uh custodizing asset and uh you could uplift the license for trading so it's a quite early stage for adgm to do that my first time experience with Middle East is you have much less uh, other geopolitical concerns when it comes to crypto. You know, obviously, Hong Kong, the reason we discuss a lot about China and Hong Kong is because there are multiple factors influencing people's perceptions on Hong Kong. But Middle East usually is pure business. So you, you don't really hear about whether uh, Middle East is particularly related to China or Hong Kong when it comes to crypto, or China and US when it comes to crypto. You just hear about where you should raise, whether it's Dubai, Abu Dhabi, uh, uh, any kind of middle UA, part of the UAE. So my, my view is, uh, I think most of the builders or uh, um, decentralized finance projects, they likely will move towards the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And uh, for now, the centralized companies, exchanges, brokers, investment banks, which specialize in crypto, likely will be in Hong Kong. And I, I am very pessimistic towards Singapore because from a, from a primary, uh, per, primary perspective my, myself, I deal with several communities, whether it's Token 2049 as a conference has thought about Hong Kong as a place instead of Singapore just because they signed a contract with Singapore. That's sort of why they have to be there just this year. Uh, some of the, even for NFT, uh, Ape Fest for Board Ape, actually thinking between Singapore and Hong Kong. So there's not going to be two cities as referee hub in Asia. 
it's going to just one. So if it's just be one, Hong Kong is a 10 times bigger financial hub than Singapore. Yep. People always forgot about Singapore is just a tiny country. So, uh, so think about if I, if I think about that for a future three or five years, you need as a firm, you need a presence in Hong Kong, Midwest, whether you have to be in Europe. I think I agree with Angelina. Mika is quite uh, early developed, but very positive. Uh, but mm-hmm. Europe to me fundamentally is quite passive in tourist pushing crypto, not from a regular point of view, but commercial point of view. US, um, to be honest, I don't know. I, I don't advise portfolios to now put much resources there <laughs> for now. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, just one note is, at least from researching uh, my first book, The Cryptopians, um, uh, there's a lot of developers in Europe. So that would be like the one uh, yeah, bonus point for, yeah, for that. Um, all right, you guys, this has been such a fascinating discussion. Where can people learn more about each of you and your work? I'm on LinkedIn and uh, I'm going to launch a website uh, soon, I hope, uh, and about some of more of my work, but happy to take part in any of your conferences and, and be accessible if people have questions. We, I, I, Adrian and I would probably say you also love Hong Kong and I love Hong Kong and this has been my home and I really hope it will succeed as a crypto financial center, um, not only being a massive international financial center. So I'm committed to it and uh, hope you'll come out here and visit us. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I uh, would like to put that on my list as well. Adrian, how about you? Well, I, I um, LinkedIn, Twitter, I'm quite active in Twitter, but even though I talk a lot about different stuff as well <laughs> on Twitter, um, and uh, we'll be, as my firm will be co-hosting Ethereum Hong Kong in October, uh, we announced already as on 14th of June, and um, so I would love to invite both of you to, to talk to Ethereum. <laughs> yeah, sure. Because uh, uh, the main reason for me is for to do it as a firm is because uh, I think we want to do something developer-driven. So not necessarily just a financial market or, or licensed product-driven, but more attracting builders and developers. I think most of the people remember Hong Kong as an international financial center, but didn't remember Hong Kong actually, actually grow as an entreport. Yeah. Entreport is not necessarily related to finance, but the way to connect the East and West is actually Hong Kong's natural advantage physically, geographically, we are at a very good av- good position to be the place. And uh, being an entrepreneur, meaning we also have to attract talents, uh, capital and everything back to the city. And as a, as a boy, uh, born and raised in Hong Kong, I, I am very passionate to, to make that happen alongside Angelina and, and everyone in Hong Kong. Perfect. Well, it's been a pleasure having you both on Unchained. Thank you, Laura. Thanks for the invitation. Yes. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Angelina, Adrian, and how Hong Kong has been embracing crypto, check out the show notes for this episode. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Kevin Fuchs, Matt Pilchard, Zach Seward, Wana Ranovich, Sam Sriram, Jenny Hogan, Jeff Benson, Leandro Camino, Pema Jumdar, Shashank, and Margaret Kuria. Thanks for listening. 